This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's election time again, and this year Oregonians have a ton on their minds, and not all of it is positive. How will that affect the Democrats who hold power in the governor's mansion in Salem and beyond? I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Up next, politics reporters Hilary Baroud and Chris Lehman break down some of the big storylines in the May primary, when Democratic and Republican candidates try to win their party's nomination as we head toward the November election. We focused on the governor's race and some of the more interesting congressional races. We talked about the wide-open Republican field for governor, how Tina Kotek and Tobias Reed are trying to differentiate from one another what to make of the new 6th Congressional District, and some of the candidates in that crowded Democratic field. Here's our conversation. Hillary Baroud, Chris Lehman, thanks for coming on the show. Great to be here. You're welcome, Andrew. Primary elections can be kind of sleepy in Oregon, but this year feels pretty interesting. Uh, is that a fair <laughs> analysis, expert analysis, uh, uh, that this is an important election coming up here in a couple weeks? Yeah, I can speak to the governor's race. It is an unusual year because there's an open seat for governor. Um, Kate Brown will not be able to run again at the end of her term this year that she's headed out of office. And so that means that there's no one on the Democrat, there's no Democratic incumbent, there's no Republican incumbent. Um, and it's turned it into kind of a free for all because we have 19 candidates on the Republican side who are running. Um, to be honest, it's, I'm now forgetting exactly how many Democrats are running. I think it's maybe fluctuated a little bit, but it's more than a dozen. And then there's the unaffiliated candidate, although she was a longtime Democrat, Betsy Johnson, who will be running in November. So it's been pretty interesting. Things were uh, even more interesting until earlier this year because there was a an outsider um, who hadn't been involved in Oregon politics before, former New York Times columnist Nick Kristoff. He was running as a Democrat, and that was going to potentially shake the dynamics up in the Democratic primary, where we have otherwise two longtime Oregon elected politicians, um, Tobias Reed, the state treasurer, and House Speaker Tina former House Speaker Katina Kotek, who are running. Um, but after the Secretary of State determined that Kristoff was not a resident of the state for long enough to run for governor under the state's constitution, it's now back to Tina Kotek and Tobias Reed. And on the Republican side, it is just still hard to know who's going to be in the best position um, with people already filling out their ballots now and uh, the, the election coming up in two and a half weeks, I should say the election deadline to, to postmark your ballot coming mm -hmm. up in about two and a half weeks. There's still a handful of Republicans that really seem positioned to win. Yeah. So we're going to keep this conversation focused on on uh, the congressional races and the and the primaries there and the uh, gubernatorial race, uh, obviously, because uh, 
we could talk about the legislature. We could talk about <laughs> Salem or Portland politics and be talking for hours and hours. So, uh, Chris, before we kind of turn specifically to some of those races, I mean, you've you've been a political reporter in Oregon for a long time. I mean, can you kind of take a step back and what do you see? I mean, how, how significant is this uh, primary election from your perspective? Well, it's it's very different than many that I've covered because of a retirement of uh, Peter DeFazio, the longtime, you know, 36-year incumbent uh, in the 4th District, and also the creation of a new congressional seat uh, due to reapportionment. That's the first new seat for Oregon in 40 years. Uh, because of those two factors, uh, this state is guaranteed to send two new members to Congress this year. That's the first time that's happened uh, in our House delegation uh, since 1998, so a whole generation ago, basically. So we'll have two new faces in D.C., which in and of itself makes it more interesting. And then, of course, you know, we can get into some of the specific races as we go on, perhaps. But um, there's been a lot of national attention to what often are rather sleepy races in Oregon. Um, and we have incumbents who are fighting for their political lies. We have new names and new faces who nobody ever heard of before until two months ago and are, are now making national headlines. So it's, it's been kind of a, an exciting time for congressional primaries. Yeah, I feel like we should just stick with you, Chris, because it is the the sixth district in particular is just kind of fascinating because there is this new name that a lot of people had no idea of maybe before reading your recent profile um, or getting a mailer or, or seeing advertisements on TV. But who is Carrick Flynn? Can you talk a little bit more about your your uh, in depth story about about Carrick and and why is he running for Congress? Yeah, Carrick Flynn is a name that, uh, you know, I, I asked some of the other candidates in that race, you know, what do you think about him? And they said, you know, f- I mean, first of all, we, we never heard of him. You know, a lot of times you have opinions in, in a in a small-ish state like Oregon. You kind of know who the, the usual players are. There are some what we call somewhat dismissively a perennial candidates who kind of run each cycle for a different office um, for some you know, to try to advance some personal mm-hmm. agenda. Uh, but Carrick Flynn was not on anybody's radar. Now, he his name showed up in the Oregon Secretary of State candidate filing uh, section, which is watched closely in the run-up to the, the filing deadline. But there were other names, uh, you know, I mean, there are 45 people running for the, the six House seats. So, you know, I didn't know everybody. Um, and I right. just kind of was like, oh, Carrick Flynn, all right, well, you know, Here's another one. Um, but then all of a sudden, I'd see these Carrick Flynn ads whenever I tried to watch a, a YouTube video um, or Carrick Flynn this and that. And and all of a sudden, there's millions of dollars being spent on his behalf by super PACs. And yeah, we were kind of like, it's time to figure out who this guy is. Um, and he's kind of young, uh, young-ish uh, you know, for a congressional candidate, 35 years old, never run for public mm-hmm. office before, and has spent much of his adult life living outside of Oregon, but he grew up in Vernonia. He grew up in a a logging community, went to the University of Oregon, clearly has ties to the state, but at the same time, you know, went off to Yale and then lived in, I think, a half a dozen different countries and uh, worked in D.C. and Cambridge, England. And, And now here he's running for Congress and he wants to sort of 
advance his, uh, you know, prop up the economy of some of the areas that he knew growing up. He likes to work on pandemic preparedness. That was uh, one of his areas of study, artificial intelligence. Uh, So, you know, he's clearly a smart guy, but a little green when it comes to politics. I would add that what makes this race interesting beyond being, you know, a whole congressional, you know, a new a new map, like literally a new district is this newcomer, uh, you know, follow the money. The uh, National Democrats are putting money behind his campaign, and that has not gone over very well with uh, some of the more uh, establishment candidates in, in that race who have been active in Oregon politics for a long time. Right. It is interesting because there are three current members of the Oregon legislature who are running, two Democrats and one Republican. And conventionally speaking, you expect that legislative candidates, they, they've run for office before. They're known at least somewhat uh, to some members of, uh, you know, some voters, you'd expect them to have the natural advantage. And in fact, most members of Oregon's congressional delegation, I don't know if this is true nationally, but in Oregon, for sure, most of them did serve in the legislature before they went off to Washington, D.C. So Carrick Flynn, as you know, as we said, obviously did not. Um, So we have these other, not that they assumed they were going to win, they're certainly fighting hard to win their election, but then you have this national democratic group, the House Majority Pack, coming in and spending seven figures uh, on on ads on behalf of uh, Carrick Flynn, and then you have a group that's bankrolled by a cryptocurrency billionaire, um, which, you know, (laughs) 10 years ago, we wouldn't even know what that meant, but somebody who's earned, made a lot of money on cryptocurrency and he's pouring millions of dollars into this race. Most of the ads that we've seen have, in fact, not been funded directly by Carrick Flynn's campaign. So that's sort of the mystery of all of the congressional candidates in in the country, really. Why did this billionaire, how did he find Carrick Flynn? There's been some articles with some, you know, connect the dots kinds of things, but we're really going to find out. Now, as far as why national Democrats are piling on on top of that, some have speculated that, well, if Carrick Flynn wins the nomination, then they don't need to spend any more money on this race because he's already got somebody spending millions of dollars on him. So they can kind of write that off as an easy win. That remains to be seen. But, you know, the winner of the primary is not for sure uh, going to be the winner of the general election. It's a it's a divided district for sure. OK, well, let's go back to Hillary and talk about the the battle, I guess, for, for lack of a better word, for Mahoney Hall, uh, the governor's mansion uh, down in uh, in Salem. So what you know, we've got Tina Kotek, who is, you know, not a newcomer at all in Oregon politics, but apparently, according to polling, a lot of people don't have a lot of knowledge of her, um, which is always interesting from someone who, who works in our business. But how are Tina Kotek and Tobias Reed, the, the front runners uh, for the Democratic uh, nomination. How are they differentiating themselves, given that they've, you know, worked in tandem in a lot of respects for a long time? That's right, um, Andrew. And it's interesting because I was looking back at some coverage that we've done in the last year, in the last year or two, um, of Oregon's problems with the unemployment insurance system when those payments weren't going out to people who are out of work in the pandemic. And, you know, interviewed Tobias Reed because he was a lawmaker at a time when there were some critical decisions being made about that system. Tina Kotek was in office. There's a lot of overlap there in terms of their time in the legislature, but Mm -hmm. differences 
in terms of their um, political career trajectories. Tina Kotek stayed in the legislature, obviously, and rose to be speaker. Tobias Reed eventually left the legislature and, and when he uh, ran and won his seat as treasurer. Uh, he'll, he'll tout that kind of a traditional campaign line that he's got executive experience since he's leading the state treasury. It's an agency that most Oregonians are probably not aware of. Um, it does do some things. Obviously, Manit is involved with managing the state's investments in the pension funds. So if you're a public employee, they're involved. They, they run a college savings plan out of there, but pretty low profile. Probably the same thing going on with Tina Kotek to some degree, even though she's the House Speaker. A lot of Oregonians just aren't closely following who's in leadership in the legislature. And so I imagine that has some something to do with just people not knowing these two candidates yet, which is why they're spending a lot on ads right now. How are they trying to differentiate themselves? Yeah, in terms of like policies or why should voters choose Tina versus Tobias? Well, um, besides Tobias pointing out that he's leading an agency versus Tina being in the legislature, she's not really managing um, some kind of entity there, although she does have to manage 60 lawmakers to some degree in order to get things passed. Mm-hmm. Um, Tina points to her track record on getting minimum a minimum wage increase passed in Oregon. That was a big piece of legislation that she was pretty involved in getting through. She's really focused on housing in Oregon, trying to get more housing built, more more housing that um, could be affordable or workforce housing. She says that homelessness and housing is the biggest issue facing the state right now, which really does reflect where voters seem to be at that, uh, um, according to polling right now. Tobias Reed has focused more on education and how he says that he would improve Oregon's uh, public schools. But interestingly, that is just not one of voters' top issues right now. Yeah, what what do voters, you know... I have a sense of what voters in the Portland area are caring about right now with our gun violence and um, other issues that this city is grappling with. But what do voters from the statewide perspective appear to care about when it comes to the election in general? That's really interesting uh, because it's a departure from some previous election years. And it does reflect to some degree a national trend in that crime is right up there. And I'm going to forget exactly what the ranking is, but it's basically homelessness, um, crime and this really general idea of leadership. Hmm. So Oregonians are feeling like their leaders have not been serving them. You know, a pollster might be able to tell you more about what exactly leadership could mean to people. I imagine it could encompass anything from kick the current leaders out, they haven't been serving us well, to some really specific ways that people might disagree um, with our current governor, Governor Kate Brown, on some policies. She she has faced a lot of opposition from people on her uh, COVID-19 mandates, mm-hmm. whether it was uh, mask requirements, closures of businesses at different points uh, during the pandemic, having schools require masks or the extent to which Oregon schools were closed for a long time. She made decisions about who would get the COVID vaccine. Teachers got that before 
older Oregonians, for example. Um, in Portland, there's been a lot of focus on leadership, obviously, with homelessness and the pileup of garbage and things. So leadership <laughs> could mean a lot to people this year. There's a lot of reasons why they're frustrated. Chris, is that same perspective playing out in the congressional races as well? Or is Governor Brown a character there? Or is it mostly President Biden and, and the, the Democratic policies? That's a great question, because honestly, I, I have not heard a lot of reference to Governor Kate Brown in the congressional primaries. It's it's far more about uh, President Biden, uh, the Democrats just generally, at least, you know, that's what we're hearing from Republican candidates. Now, the Republicans and, and Democrats, of course, aren't running against each other at this point, although you wouldn't always know it based on some of the rhetoric that comes out on the Republican side, um, where they're right. sort of running against incumbents in some cases. But it's it's more been about national politics, for sure. Um, generally, like sometimes there's reference to public safety issues that sort of have a lot of crossover to state politics, though. We were talking about the 6th District and, and the Democratic side, but we'd be remiss in not mentioning um, the Republicans who have thrown their hat in the ring for that new district. Can you give us a, a quick uh, snapshot of, of who's vying for uh, representing that new district? Yeah, the leading, well, I shouldn't say leading because, you know, it's not like we have polls or, or you know, anything sort of tangible uh, except for fundraising numbers. You can read only read so much into that. But one of the most prominent candidates for sure in the 6th District is uh, one of those state representatives uh, who I sort of mentioned earlier, uh, Ron Noble. He's a Republican from uh, the McMinnville area. I think he doesn't live in town, but he was formerly a McMinnville uh, police chief and has represented that area in the Oregon House for a, a few terms now. And he has certainly been among the more you know public known candidates on the Republican side. Uh, and we should point out, too, for those who don't know, the 6th District, which is the new district, runs from the southwest Portland suburbs, taking in like Tualatin um, and down through Newburgh, mm -hmm. McMinnville, and all the way down to Salem and Kaiser. So it's not huge geographically, but of course it has more or less the same number of uh, voters or people as all the other districts. But it's kind of a northern Willamette Valley, southwest suburb. So Ron Noble is the Republican who's best known. There's uh, surprisingly a former member of Congress uh, running, Jim Bunn, who served one term um, in mm. Congress in the 1990s. Uh, I believe uh, he was the last Republican member of Congress to represent portions of the Willamette Valley. Uh, he had some um, embarrassing political revelations, which we probably can't really go into now because I don't actually have all the details at the tip of my fingers, but he's hardly raised any money. I don't know that he's going to be a factor, but he's certainly a name that people were like, oh yeah, Jim Bunn, you know. Otherwise, there's there's not a ton of people that you would typically know. So I don't, I'm not saying Ron Noble is the shoe-in for the Republican nominee, but you know, conventionally speaking, he would be. And Ron Noble is interesting from my perspective covering the legislature because he was involved um, pretty heavily in negotiating some police accountability and reform bills in the last couple of sessions since racial mm -hmm. justice um, protests had, had really erupted following the killing of George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd. He's an interesting guy. And one thing that we didn't mention earlier about some of the state lawmakers who are running um, on the Democratic side is they would be Oregon's first 
um, congressional uh, or U.S. representatives, I believe that would be Latina. Is that correct, Chris? I don't know if they would also be the first members of color. I believe so. Yeah, there, there's certainly some um, fresh territory that would be, uh, you know, new achievements that would be, um, you know, occur if, uh, and, and we'll might as well uh, mention them by name, of course, uh, Andrea Salinas, a state representative, and Teresa Alonzo mm-hmm. Leon, the other uh, Democratic state representative running in the 6th District uh, against uh, Carrick Flynn, uh, among, among several others. Loretta Smith, the former aide to Senator Ron Wyden, is also running in that race, and she's a she's a black woman. And I guess to to answer Hillary's uh, thought about uh, lawmakers of color, uh, Congressman David Wu uh, served in the uh, in the Congress representing what is now uh, Suzanne Bonamici's district previously. So just wanted to note that. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back and talk a little bit more with Hillary Baroud and Chris Lehman. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So Hillary, we kind of talked a very uh, surface level about the Republican field and how large it is. There's a uh, former uh, GOP nominee for governor in, in Bud Pierce. Um, there's uh, a whole lot of other interesting candidates. Um, what can you tell us in short order about this field? Um, how how present it is uh, former President Trump in the field and are some of the uh, national trends of critical race theory and um, the, you know, the latest talking point uh, uh, surrounding uh, trans kids, is that seeping into the Republican primary as well? Yeah. So just thinking of the Republican gubernatorial field this year, I think something that Chris and I have both seen is just how much these open seats draw candidates out of the woodwork, um, candidates who might have been involved in Oregon politics past and haven't, they've been out of the scene for years and years. And then this just seems like a year when for Republicans specifically, they see an opportunity to really actually win with that unaffiliated candidate um, running in November and potentially splitting the vote. So Bob Tiernan is running. He was a state lawmaker for a couple terms in the 90s as well, going back to the 90s. He was really involved with getting Oregon's minimum sentencing law, Measure 11, passed. And then he's he's been mm-hmm. out of Oregon politics for many years. I think he was the, the chairman of the Oregon Republican Party for a while in the aughts. Um, so he is running. Christine Drazen is one of the probably leading candidates right now. She's a former House Republican leader. She led Republicans to walk out and kill a cap-and-trade bill trying to address climate change in 2020. And she's got a lot of institutional support from Republican donors in Oregon, although it's interesting, a lot of them are also supporting that um, former longtime Democrat, unaffiliated candidate, Betsy Johnson. 
Um, but Christine Drazen's definitely up there. But Pierce, the Salem cancer doctor who was the Republican nominee in 2016 against Kate Brown, he is running again and has, he started his campaign at the end of 2020. So he's been running longer than any other candidate in that race. Um, those three are probably about at the top right now because Tiernan has been spending so much uh, money on TV ads, but you've also got Stan Pulliam. He's the mayor of Sandy and he is, uh, she works in insurance and he built up this following during the COVID pandemic, um, railing against Kate Brown's mandates and lockdowns. And he built up kind of a grassroots following from that. And you'd asked Andrew about, um, how much, these cultural issues that Republicans are running on a lot this year, critical race theory um, and uh, the issue of trans or just LGBTQ kids generally. Um, Stan Pulliam has really embraced that and is trying to use that. um, It appears to kind of stay in that lead pack of Republicans because he faced a setback earlier this year when Willamette Week reported that he and his wife had been involved in, um, of all cities, a Portland swingers group um, for an unspecified length of time. He's never said how long they were involved in that group, but around 2016. Um, and of course, he's been talking a lot about how terrible crime uh, crime is in Portland, and there's a culture of lawlessness in Portland and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but he has come out and attacked Oregon schools that have been working on these these protocols to support their transgender students. Um, it could be anything in Oregon from just identifying the student by the the pronoun that they use, their name that they use at school, um, respecting their privacy, letting them use the bathroom that is appropriate, you know, for them. And he has really come out and attacked those school districts. And he's been running ads um, saying that his, his daughters should not have to compete against boys in sports. Um, he was also, I think, probably the most out there in hoping that President Trump would endorse him, but that hasn't happened. We haven't seen the former president um, endorse any of these candidates. What's really surprising to me when you list uh, all those Republican nominees, Hillary, is, you know, when I arrived in Oregon 16 years ago, Bill Sizemore was kind of public enemy number one for um, a lot of Democrats and public employee unions. He very unsuccessfully ran for governor in the 90s, had much more success, politically speaking, on the initiative front. And he jumped into the race and he's basically generated very little interest among donors, among the media, almost a a footnote, you know, in the sort of the other candidates are, and then his name is on there with a list of other people you've never heard of. Kind of surprising considering how high of a profile Bill Sizemore had at one point in Oregon politics, but also indicative of how things change and new people come onto the scene. And it's such a large field that, you know, People just don't automatically raise, rise to the top because their name is is known in political circles. Yeah, I was surprised to see Bill was still definitely getting some support. So he's got some name recognition out there. But like Chris said, he hasn't uh, he hasn't really attracted any donor support this time. 
Yeah, the tax, the issue of uh, taxation, um, you know, obviously in government spending is is historically a big issue on the Republican side of the aisle, but um, that's really been dwarfed, I would say, for quite a while, nationally, locally, however you want to slice it, by cultural issues, and um, and now the the reemergence as as a uh, as you both have highlighted that um, you know issues of of uh, crime and law enforcement, um, and that's kind of a something that might draw unaffiliated voters concerns as well. Chris, so we talked about the sixth district. We did not really talk much about the fourth or fifth district. Obviously, um, the fifth district uh, has changed its borders slightly as well. And uh, Congressman Schrader recently landed a big endorsement from uh, a certain occupant in the White House. But um, in what's a pretty fascinating dynamic, uh, he doesn't have the support of the rest of the Oregon congressional delegation. Right. It's certainly a, a truism among congressional races nationally that incumbents generally don't have a lot of opposition in their primary. Certainly, you see general election battles. Uh, in recent years, there have been a few longtime Democratic incumbents um, in New York State in particular that have lost their primaries, but that hasn't happened in Oregon. We haven't even had a real hearty uh, challenge to a primary. People like Earl Blumenauer and, um, you know, Peter DeFazio, he's not running this year, but generally speaking, th- you know, they'd focus on the general election. Not the case this year in the 5th District with Kurt Schrader. The boundaries of the district have changed uh, fairly significantly. Uh, there's going to be a lot of Democrats who get their primary ballot and will have never had Kurt Schrader you know, as an option before. So is he really the incumbent for half of the district? That's uh, maybe a philosophical question, but uh, he doesn't enjoy the same name recognition. They haven't been getting his you know, mailers or whatever for the last 10 plus years. And Jamie McLeod Skinner, who is somewhat known in political circles in Central Oregon, especially for having run for Congress in a different district, also run for Secretary of State. Now she's mounting a a fairly vigorous challenge against Kurt Schrader and has the support of a lot of uh, partisan activists. She's unabashedly running to Schrader's left, whether that's a, a good idea for the general election is a matter of debate, but is certainly getting her some traction and some attention and some national endorsements, although not from the president. Um, But it's certainly a competitive race. You can clearly see from Kurt Schrader's folks that they are focusing right now on the primary, whereas in previous election cycles, probably was a little sleepy right now and then, you know, see what they need to do in August or September as far as the general election. Democrats do have an edge in the redrawn 5th district, but it's certainly because there's so much new territory, um, it it certainly could be a competitive race in the fall. Uh, But again, right now, in in kind of an unconventional election cycle, uh, Kurt Schrader is running for his, his political career right now in the primary. And Chris, Jamie McLeod Skinner, of course, you don't have to live in the district to run for a seat in Congress, as you had addressed in your really interesting story about how many (laughs) candidates can't actually vote for themselves in this primary because they live outside of the district they're running in. But Jamie McLeod Skinner, she would not have been in the district or even close to it um, before the redraw, right? I mean, I, I forget exactly what this new fifth district looks like, but I remember um, a Republican in the state legislature calling it boot shaped and 
um, thinking that, well, it doesn't really look like a boot, but it didn't used to cross over the mountains, the Cascade <laughs> Range, to go into central Oregon. Yeah. It looks like a reverse Louisiana if you look at it on the map. Yeah, that's a, that's actually a good comparison. It, yeah, it used to go out to the coast. It no longer goes to the coast. It used to include Salem. Doesn't have Salem anymore. Uh, but yes, now it crosses the Cascades and takes in Bend. Um, and, you know, Jamie McLeod Skinner doesn't live in Bend. Uh, she doesn't even live in Deschutes County. She lives just across the line in Jefferson County and as such is not in the district. But again, fairly decently known uh, among Democrats, at least, and has more ties to Central Oregon in a way that Kurt Schrader cannot really claim. Uh, so she's she's running on that. And and yes, and, and truth be told, she's not even the only candidate in the 5th District who doesn't live in the district. Uh, Lore Chavez de Reamer, one of the Republican candidates, uh, former mayor of Happy Valley, um, also lives just outside the line, uh, but is running in the 5th District. And there, are, I mean, there are, uh, I believe in every Every congressional district except the second district, there are candidates who aren't in the district who are running. Perfectly legal, unlike a state legislative race where you have to live in the district and it is enforced. Um, in congressional races, you don't. You just have to be a resident of the state. So it's all above board. Whether it's a political vulnerability or, or not depends on who you ask and a lot of other extenuating circumstances as well. I was glad you brought that up, Hillary, because that was a fascinating story. And we'll, we'll, I, I was news to me. <laughs> uh, you know, we spent so much time on the uh, Nick Kristoff residency question. Um, and lo and behold, the uh, congressional uh, districts, you know, I grew up in Medford. I don't live in Medford. I could run for the second district. Um, it's just kind of a, an interesting little factoid there. Before I let you go, anything else, like any trends or issues or races that uh, either of you are particularly interested in, in following that could be a bellwether for November? Hillary, let's start with you. Well, um, I think it, I, I'm really fascinated by the 6th Congressional District race that Chris is following, just because we see over and over again how um, really well-funded candidates seem to prevail. And that is just such an obvious example of you have this person who has ties to Oregon, but has really lived most of his adult life outside of Oregon, hasn't been back here serving on a school board or a city council or, you know, dog catcher, anything versus um, these lawmakers who've been pretty involved. So that's going to be interesting to see how Oregonians react to what's really the obvious high level of spending there. Outside of anything we've talked about, but since I also cover the legislature a lot. I'm going to be interested to see what happens with this new pack that uh, we've touched on a couple times this spring, bring balance to Salem, because they're turning out to really raise a lot of money to spend on getting Republicans elected. And uh, of course, Chris and I are both going to be probably interested to see how the mix of lawmakers turns out under those new districts that were drawn last year whether Democrats hold on to their their significant majorities in Oregon or not. And Chris? There's a, a couple of uh, races that we haven't mentioned that I think could be uh, congressional races that could be uh, sort of very interesting in the fall for different reasons. Um, one is the 4th Congressional District. As we said earlier, Peter DeFazio is retiring um, after serving in D.C. for longer than 
uh, Carrick Flynn has been alive, uh, to throw out another name there. Um, but that leaves an open seat. So historically, those are very competitive, um, especially in general elections. In the primary for the Democrats, we have former state lawmaker and current labor commissioner, which as uh, one of the uh, a reader contacted me and said, you really ought to mention that labor commissioner is an elected statewide office. Not everybody knows that. I think that's a fair point. So Val Hoyle mm-hmm. has been elected to a statewide office running now in the fourth district. Conventionally speaking, she would be considered the leading candidate. There are some other active candidates in that race, uh, an Airbnb executive named Andrew Kallick, um, Doyle Canning, who has run in the past and is decently known in the Eugene area, uh, and a few others, a Corvallis school board member. Uh, but their opponent, whoever wins that, will face Alex Scarlatos in the fall. He's the only Republican uh, on the primary ballot. He's known for his role in thwarting a, a terrorist attack on a uh, on a European train. There was a Hollywood movie made of that incident in which he played himself. He was on Dancing with the Stars. This is all well known. He's he's run. He ran against Afazio two years ago. It didn't really come close. But is this the year? The the district was redrawn slightly more in favor of Democrats, but it's still a fairly divided neck of the woods in Oregon, lots of rural areas. And so we'll we'll see. Uh, in a conventional year, the Democrats would, would call that an easy race. This year, maybe not so much. And very quickly, we haven't talked at all, and there's been very little coverage, but we have a, a Senate, a U.S. Senate race in Oregon this year. Ron Wyden, uh, in a typical year, he could you know win that in his sleep. You have to think this fall, if Ron Wyden is in trouble, then the Democrats nationally are going to be in huge trouble. There's no indication of Ron Wyden um losing his reelection bid, but he's got to do it. There's there's a Republican primary. They'll have somebody. There will be some, you know, attempt at, at winning that seat away from Ron Wyden. But again, you know, all things being equal, he's probably the, the safest of all of the incumbents on the Oregon ballot this year. You mentioned the uh, Scarlatos uh, candidacy. Obviously, that drew a lot of outside Oregon money uh, in the last uh, congressional cycle. So I imagine we can expect more of that once we move on toward November. Well, thank you both for all of your reporting and for taking so much time to talk about it. It's kind of a hodgepodge, but there's a lot of stuff there. And uh, I appreciate all of your uh, expertise. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us, Andrew. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. I shared links to some of Hillary and Chris's recent stories in the episode notes. If you like this show, give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find the show. And tell a friend. Help spread the word. The best way to support our journalism is through a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.